it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thanks very much. We'll do keep um, Genesis 2 particularly open. We'll look in a few other places, but we're going to largely be focused on Genesis 2. Um, and let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you've been helping us all learn together over the last few weeks as we've been exploring these amazing chapters of Genesis. And as we draw things to a close this week, I pray that you would help us to understand this great theme of life that appears here in the garden, that reappears in Revelation at the end of the Bible. And that you would help us to understand that the whole Bible is about life, the life that you long for each of us to live, to experience and to receive for ourselves. So please will you help us to understand many of the difficulties in this passage and please uh, be our teacher and our guide now. Amen. Great, if we could just um, see where we've been the last few weeks. If you haven't been here, uh, we've been trying to look through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 um, through these kind of different lenses, different ways of understanding these few chapters, trying to draw out, uh, I guess, some of the richness of these two chapters. And I hope we're seeing that they are absolutely jam-packed with amazing truths. Uh, and this week we're looking at the final lens, the kind of storyline lens. We're going to spend a bit of the time thinking about uh, the tree of life from Genesis chapter 2. But then towards the end, I'm going to try and help us to see how some of the themes from Genesis 1 and 2 can be traced all the way through the scriptures to the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible to hopefully help us to see that the whole Bible is actually one story and everything kind of fits together. Um, so I hope that will be helpful. Uh, throughout the, the course of the last few weeks, a number of people have spoken to me or one of the other pastors just asking different questions, and occasionally we've been able to help. Um, but there's also a lot of wisdom out there um, for you. So what we've done together is um, put together a bit of a sort of suggested things to read. Don't be worried by this. It's simply um, a resource which you could take away because there is just so much that could be read on all these subjects. And these are things that we found helpful. Um, which we could recommend to you. So what we've done is I've broken down the different weeks and put some suggested books under each of the weeks. So if there's anything you particularly want to follow up, um, these are, the copies of this are on the door on the way out. And um, I'd encourage you just to take this away because it may at least give you a head start with some of the things. Um, there are lots of helpful things to read and there's also a lot of unhelpful things to read. Um, so those things might perhaps be a good place to start. We're going to think uh, for a moment about the Garden of Life and then... Uh, trace some of these things through Genesis chapter 2. So just have a look back to chapter 2 verse 7. We fo focused on this verse last week when we were thinking about what it mean, meant to be made in the image of God. And we read that little verse, the man became a living being. Slightly strange verse, wasn't it? The man was already alive. He was biologically alive. 
But that verse was really speaking about God as he breathed spiritual life into Adam. He became a living being. And it was at that point, really, that relationship began between Adam and God. And what I want you to notice is, have a look at chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. Notice all the different references that the writer gives to the fact that this garden was a place of abundant life. Some are very obvious, some are perhaps a little more hidden. I'll just walk us through some of them. Have a look, chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, The writer tells us that the garden was in the east. Now, maybe that's not significant, but the east is where the sun rises, and the sun is what brings life and light to the world. Have a look again, chapter 2, verse 8. It was a garden in Eden. Uh, the, The word Eden is linked to another word that means abundance or flourishing. So again, it's probably not just an arbitrary detail. It could well be that the writer is drawing attention to this place because of the sort of place it was. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 9. I spoke last week about the tree that was not just useful, good food to eat, but also pleasurable to look at. So the world that God created wasn't just a functional world that provides for us. It was also an incredible world that we can enjoy. And didn't we last week pause to pray and thank God for some of the things that we are so busy often to miss. But this is a world that was meant to be pleasurable. Chapter 2, verse 9, there was a tree of life. Where was it in the garden? In the middle. Probably because this was to be the focus. Whatever's in the middle is often the focus. And this tree was in the garden for that reason. The tree of life here, almost certainly representing the presence of God with his people, the giver of life. No doubt it was a real tree. You read in chapter 2, verse 9, there were all sorts of trees that God put in the garden. This is probably a real tree, but it also represented God's presence with his people. And we'll see why when we get to the end of the Bible a little later on. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 10. You get these rivers that are watering the garden. Well, water all the way through the Bible is often a symbol of life. And notice that these rivers are flowing outwards from the garden. So you'll read in verse 11 and in verse 13 that these rivers were flowing through the entire land of Perhaps the idea that life began in the garden but was flowing out from the garden. And as the people who started in the garden spread out across the world, they too were to bring life into the world that God had given. And last little detail, look at verse 12 of chapter 2. We read, didn't we, that the world that God created was full of plentiful resources, both of worth and of beauty. Now, to answer Martin's question from a few weeks ago, uh, we'll be stalling on this one. Where on earth is this garden? Um, To disappoint you, Martin, we probably don't know. Uh, There are lots of scholars who uh, have spent their whole lives trying to figure out where on earth this garden is. The chances are it was probably in Mesopotamia, kind of modern-day Iraq, somewhere there. The Bible doesn't tell us where this garden was, and for all the efforts of the scholars who try and figure it out, we simply don't know. Um, But interestingly, and we looked at this in the first week, the writer doesn't draw great attention to where it is. It tells us it's in Eden, it tells us it's in the east. But actually, what's the focus of the writer? Not so much where is this place, but more what is this place? Rather like when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, the writer wasn't primarily focusing on how the world came into being, but more the question of who did it. And we saw God, 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 do you remember? So here the writer isn't, doesn't seem to be upset about not giving us detail. But he does give us a lot of detail about the fact that this was a place where God was. God was with his people. And we saw that little verse, chapter 2, verse 8, 
uh, the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I read that as a metaphor for God's presence in the garden with his people. Um, And then this lovely last little verse, chapter 2, verse 25, kind of the summary. uh, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Really a picture of the freedom that they were enjoying in their relationship. Free from guilt, experiencing and enjoying life. So what you get in Genesis 2 is this abundant place that God has created and God's people are flourishing in it. It is the garden of life. But very sadly, and we saw this in the reading into chapter 3, doesn't the garden of life become a kind of wilderness of death? A place that was initially a place of flourishing, a place of life, becomes a place of difficulty, a place of death, a place of frustration. And what you see is that the blessing that God first poured out on Adam and Eve becomes a curse. So just have a look at this. We'll focus on woman first, Eve. What was the blessing primarily given to her in chapter 1 verse 28 be fruitful and increase in number the woman was going to bear a son but then you read in chapter 3 verse 16 that this gift of giving birth was to become a curse the woman would continue to give birth but it would be with great pain far greater pain than she'd ever experienced what was meant to be first a blessing became a curse have a look at chapter 2 verse 22 last week we were thinking about what it meant for Eve to be taken out of the side of Adam primarily an equal she was equal to Adam and then you see in chapter 3 verse 16 how what was meant to be good was turned on its head your desire her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her what that's saying is Eve won't desire the God-given role she'd been given she will want to be the authority which was given to man And man won't lovingly serve his wife. He will rule over her. So the blessings that were first poured upon Eve became a curse. Notice also how this works for Adam. What was the blessing that God put upon him in chapter 2 verse 15? Work the land and take care of it. But then you go through to chapter 3 verse 17 and 19. The work becomes cursed through painful toil, through the sweat of your brow the earth will produce food. We also see that the man will no longer be an effective earth keeper. Rather than the man ruling over the earth and bringing out the best within it, you see the earth increasingly ruling over man. So what we see here is that the picture of life that was given in chapter 2 becomes a place of curse in chapter 3. And you follow it through to chapter 3. Have a look at 3.23. Adam and Eve are then banished from the garden now this was a place of life it was a place of abundance and now they're taken out of this place and then chapter 3 verse 24 there's no way back and specifically what's the detail you get in 324 there's no way back to what it's not just there's no way back to the garden in general there's something specific the writer draws attention to there's no way back to the tree of life Well, what's happened? Why has there been this movement from this place, this garden of life, to this wilderness of death? Well, you see in chapter 3, don't you, as the serpent tempts Eve, three things she starts doubting. She doubts the truthfulness of God's word. So what does the serpent say to Eve? She says, did God really say? 
Did he really say that? And of course, he twists those words. Eve then says, God says we shouldn't eat of the tree and we also should not touch it. Well, God never said that. So the word of God had been distorted. Eve started doubting God's good, uh, truthfulness. She also doubted the goodness of God. Have a look at chapter 3, verse four, 5, where the devil says to Eve, God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the devil doing? The devil is effectively saying to Eve, God is not good. God is holding something back from you that is good. So you should take after it yourself. Snatch it. It's yours. God's not letting you have it. Go on. You take it. And so Eve starts doubting his goodness. And the last thing Adam and Eve do is they doubt the wisdom of God being God. Have a look at chapter 3 verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So this movement from the garden of life to the wilderness of death has all come through mankind doubting God, doubting his truthfulness, doubting his goodness and doubting the incredible thing that when God is God, life works. They didn't believe that. They wanted to be God of their own life. Well, let's take this on a bit further. Let's have a look at these two trees that were in the garden. We read in chapter 2, verse 19, there were all kinds of trees. Uh, and we go outside and we see all sorts of trees growing in God's world. But again, in the middle of the garden, what were the two trees that the writer draws attention to? One was the tree of life, which you've mentioned. What was the other one? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I've, I've been uh, thinking about this this week. I believe that these two trees are deeply connected. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we're going to think a bit about why these two trees are linked. But what I want to do particularly to help us to do that is focus on two verses, which is back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. There's a lot of jumping around, but I hope it will help us to see as we pull things together. Just want you to focus on the first half of that sentence, chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. Now we know that freedom is crucial for human flourishing and enjoyment. Imagine if God had created us in a world where we were puppets on a string or robots. It would be a terrible world. One of the reasons that we were looking at last week of what it means to be made in the image of God is that you and I are made for relationship. And for relationship to flourish, there has to be an opportunity to choose to love someone or choose not to love them. If God forced us to love him, it wouldn't be a true relationship. So here he says, you're free. But the interesting thing, it's not an absolute freedom. Often uh, you might hear people uh, say things like, when someone's asked the question, uh, why is there sin in the world? Uh, someone or you might even respond, well, it's because we had free will. And Adam and Eve did what they, didn't, what, they did what they chose. Interestingly, that word free will doesn't really appear in the scriptures anywhere. Uh, a far better word to understand would be something like uh, responsibility. 
As human beings, you and I have responsibility, which means that we make meaningful decisions. We have real choices that we can make that have consequences. But we don't have absolute freedom in the sense that is often expressed in free will. In a universe where God is completely sovereign, no one is completely free. He he controls every breath that you take. He controls every beat of your heart. Adam and Eve in the garden didn't have an absolute freedom, but they had a real freedom. They had the choice and opportunity to exercise the responsibility that God gave them. And they made meaningful decisions. And you see, it was a very meaningful decision. They did something in chapter 3, and there were consequences. We'll have a look again at that verse, 2 verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree, but, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, why? seems a slightly strange thing for God to say, you can't eat of this tree. Why would God want to withhold from his people a knowledge of what is good and what is evil? It's an odd question, isn't it? And it's exactly the question that the serpent puts to Eve. What does, she say to, what does the serpent say to Eve? The serpent pretends that he, he, um, God is a killjoy and says in chapter 3, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. So the serpent is tempting Eve, saying God is a killjoy. He doesn't want you to know what is good and what is evil. He's restraining you. He's restricting you from something that's good for you. But actually, this isn't so much God forbidding Adam and Eve from eating from a tree, but more forbidding them from being the people who decide what is good and what is evil. God's not withholding from us the ability to discern with his help what is good and evil. He's saying, God says, I am the one who determines what is right and wrong. And that is why I've said to you, don't eat from this tree. Go back to the very first week, and we looked in quite a lot of detail at chapter 1, verse 1, didn't we? That really big statement that opens the Bible. In the beginning, God. And if that is the truth that is foundational for the whole of the scriptures, the first truth that you read, that explains a lot about why God wants to be God and he doesn't want us to be God. Why God wants to be the one who determines what is right and wrong. And he says, you're not in a place to determine that. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Mark, or in the beginning, Rob, or in the beginning, Caroline. In the beginning, God. We looked last week, didn't we, about what it meant to be an image bearer. And part of that was to find um, morality and ethics which are rooted in the very nature of who God is. I don't determine what is right or wrong based on what I think is right and wrong. I look at God. He is the one who determines what is right and wrong. And so when in chapter 2, verse 16, he said to Adam and Eve, you may eat of any tree. He's saying, look, you've got a freedom. You can do what you want in this garden, but don't eat from this tree. Why? Because this tree represents the ability to decide what is right and wrong. And God says, I'm God and you're not. But what happened as soon as Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God? Broken relationships. You look at Psalm 2, it's a great psalm that in part speaks of the defiance of mankind against God. And what what does it read in the middle there? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. 
This is humankind saying, I don't want God to be chaining me and telling me what I do. What is right and what is wrong. I want to be free. But what happens the second that mankind wants to be free from God? They're never going to be completely free because God is sovereign. We read in Romans, don't we? They claim to be wise, but they became fools. If Adam and Eve were truly wise, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have done them no damage at all. But they weren't truly wise because they were created beings. And in the same way, the second that you and I decide to be God, to be the determiners of what is right and wrong, our life falls apart too, just as it did for Adam and Eve. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Let's, um, let's put one thing straight. When you uh, look at cartoons, you read in storybooks, children's storybooks, you'll always see Eve or Adam in the garden eating an apple. Uh, Genesis doesn't tell us that it was an apple. If the Garden of Eden was in Mesopotamia, it was much more likely to have been an orange or a fig. It wasn't an apple. Do you know that part of the reason why we all think it's apples? I read this this week, which I had never heard before. In Latin, the word for apple is malum. In Latin, the word for bad is malum. They're spelt exactly the same. And all there is is a little accentuation over one of the letters that distinguishes malum apple, malum bad. And somewhere in the medieval world, people got confused over this word malum. And so people assumed that the fruit was an apple. So there's a little bit of trivia for you for the next uh, pub quiz that you ever do. Uh, useless, but maybe interesting. But here's the thing about this piece of fruit. Let's call it a fig or an orange because it probably wasn't an apple. The point was, it, this piece of fruit didn't contain a kind of sin poison. As if when Eve took this fruit and ate it, she consumed something that was in this piece of fruit that was poison. And it got into her bloodstream. And then when they produced offspring, it got into the bloodstream of them and them and them and then. That's not what's going on here. God could have easily have said, don't cross that river. Don't climb that mountain. Don't touch that monkey. But he didn't. He said, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. It wasn't that the tree was inherently bad, and it wasn't that the fruit on this tree was inherently bad. It was what this tree represented. And the act of taking from this tree, which God said, don't take of that, is an act of defiance against God. So rather than something that I consume that makes me ill and then I die, it's far more something that's going on in my heart. It's that attitude of grabbing hold of what God says, don't touch it, don't take that. When Adam and Eve did, it's that attitude that translated from Adam and Eve to every person who was ever created after them. God is the determiner of what is right and what is wrong. That is what the knowledge of the tree of good and evil was all about. As the writer to the, uh, of the book of Romans says, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve got wrong in the garden, didn't it? They thought that they knew better. And when the serpent tempted them, they thought, oh yeah, maybe the serpent's right. Maybe God is withholding something good from us. But they didn't understand. And in that moment, they did not seek God. And everything that's gone wrong in the world has been rooted in that one very problem. 
And of course, that is where spiritual death came from. So you read in chapter 2, verse 7, God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam. He became a living being. And then you read in chapter 3, verse 24, that Adam and Eve are cut off from the garden of life. I'm going to pause there before we look at the sort of Bible overview part of tonight, um, just for a chance for us to reflect. Uh, as we did last week, any questions you have, any um, reflections or comments that you'd like to make that would help us to learn from this passage? Um, so let's just have a moment to gather your thoughts, and it'd be great if one or two could lead us in some questions or comments. Mark, thanks. So, where did sin enter the world? Was it the serpent? Was it Adam or Eve? Because I think that reference to Romans 3 is really referring to Paul's view of the sinful nature that we have Mm -hmm. being born in Adam. Mm -hmm. But the serpent came to Eve before Adam and Eve had. Well, they they weren't created with a sinful nature. So where did sin begin? Thank you, that's a great question. We have to, we have to think of sin um, as an attitude. And I think we've learned that being part of being made in the image of God and having this responsibility to be in the garden, to listen to the commands of God and to turn our backs on the commands of God. Uh, Adam and Eve had an opportunity um, to decide whether they were going to listen to God, to decide, was God truth trustworthy? Was God good? Uh, ultimately, do I want God to be God or do I want to be God? I guess when um, Satan comes along, I think one of the really interesting things you see in Genesis 3 is what is it that Satan does? He goes straight for the word of God, doesn't he? He goes straight for the word of God, twisting the word of God, appealing to mankind to doubt the word of God. And it's that that traps them. It's exactly what the serpent does, uh, what Satan does to Jesus when he's tempted at the beginning of his ministry. And how does Jesus respond? Each time he responds with the word of God. He does the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve failed to do. Um, So kind of where does sin come from? Uh, Satan was a fallen angel. Um, We read of Satan who originally was worshipping God with the angels in heaven and kind of looking around wanted the glory for himself and so became cursed, um, came to earth. And I guess... God allowed Satan into this garden, whether it was a, a physical snake, I suspect probably not. Um, maybe it is, I guess a lot of that depends on how we read Genesis 1 and 2. But however Satan entered the garden, that influence of Satan on Adam and Eve was allowed into the garden. And they then had a chance to respond, will I trust in the word of God or will I not? So how did sin enter the world? I guess God allowed sin to enter the world because he's sovereign, he allowed Satan into the world. Um, God was always in complete control of the work of Satan, but he allowed Satan to do pretty devastating damage. And I guess sin entered the world when Adam and Eve decided that they wouldn't let God be God. And so that attitude of rebellion is then picked up. So one of the key passages to understand of the link between Adam and us is Romans chapter 5. Uh, do you want to just turn to that? I'm thinking slightly on my feet, so I'll need to just find a verse. But um, Romans 5 is a really helpful a passage that connects the sin of Adam with our rebellion. Uh, I guess verse 18 is helpful. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, and then it goes on, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. 
So that attitude of rebellion, um, which God allowed, meant that Adam and Eve turned their back on him. But we mustn't think that what happened kind of through God, as if God had made kind of plan A, Genesis 1 and 2, and then he had to go back to the drawing board and think, flip, look what's happened. This wasn't exactly what I planned. We knew that this was planned all the way through um, from the very beginning. And, and right here in Genesis chapter 3, you get at the beginning of the gospel. Did you, did you, did you pick it up in that reading? Uh, chapter 3, verse 15 um, I will put enmity between you and your offspring, between, between the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is there speaking of Jesus Christ, the ultimate offspring of Eve. And Satan would strike at the heel of Jesus Christ, wouldn't he? On the cross. He died. But it says here that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of Satan. And that's what happened where you get this great declaration of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is finished so it wasn't sort of catching us out what happened in the garden um, slightly long winded I'm trying to sort of think on my feet and trying to draw things together does that help a little bit uh, I, think, I think it's important to realise that God allowed Satan and his influence and he does allow Satan's influence in our world um, that's a really big question and, and something we'll perhaps come back to yeah thank you Alistair I will be brief. <laughs> um, I read a book many, many years ago, and I saw it in the old suitcase about two weeks ago, sitting in the lobby, and I have a copy myself, which is um, a book called Genesis 3. Uh, it's a very old um, bit of exposition, but I always remember two things from it. So I guess, firstly, the thing I'm... And I haven't been here for the entire series. Um, I'm surprised you don't think the serpent potentially uh, was a snake, but uh, maybe for another day. But I, I recall the author of that small commentary um, stating that um, as soon as the serpent spoke, Eve should have known that something was wrong. Um, because there's nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about the fact that um, animals were given the gift of speech. So if, if we do deal with it literally, then the very slight uh, break from what was creative code uh, we should have been indicative enough for her to realise that something was wrong mm. and she should have flown um, instantly from that situation rather than being drawn in. I think the other thing that I, I recall, and again, I, I've always found this useful myself, is that when um, there is this discussion between um, Satan and Eve, uh, the tree of life is never spoken of. Uh, the only thing she refers to is the, the tree of good and evil in the middle of the garden, mm. but not the tree of life. Mm. And it's always struck me that the tree of life is there as the alternative to uh, the tree of good and evil. Mm. Um, and the tree of life is always available within mm. the garden. And that's always struck me as quite a strong um, message about uh, that being always available and they chose the other way. Mm. Um, going back to your point around it was ultimately a behavior and a decision they made. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, forgive me if there was a slight Freudian slip. I didn't mean to say I don't think that the serpent was the devil was a serpent. I, I do read it as literally in that sense. What I meant to uh, mean was um, the devil is a spirit in the sense of a fallen angel who took the form of a serpent in the garden. But I don't think we need to think today of the devil um, as a serpent crawling around on the earth. I just want to clarify that. Uh, yeah, I think that's really true. Interestingly, notice um, in I, I, I'm, I'm trying to find the verse. Notice when. Um, when Eve temp, uh, Satan tempts Eve, she sees that um, 
uh, chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. I think that's the key thing, exactly. I think it's a helpful point you made. There were two trees. All the focus in the, in the temptation was on the, the tree of knowledge and good and evil because what the devil is trying to do is say to Adam and Eve, God's given you some form of life in the garden, but if you want to taste real life, if you want to know what is truly wise you'll find that outside of God. Take from this tree. But interestingly, what is true wisdom? True wisdom is recognizing that God is God and God is the one who gives life. But think about most of the world who live in defiance of God. Don't we all, if we just go back, don't we all say what the psalmist recalls in chapter three, uh, chapter two, uh, Psalm 2, let us break off God's chains and throw off his shackles. People want true freedom. People think, well, God can offer some sort of life, but I want real life. I want to live life in the fast lane, and I'm going to experience the best life without God. But they make the exact mistake that we don't want to make. So I think that is helpful. Great, let's have a couple more questions, and then we'll... Naomi, you always ask good questions. Let's whiz. Can someone run the mic round to her? Or do you want to... Yeah, thank you. Um, if God, because God knows everything, if he knew that Adam and Eve were going to eat from the tree, why did he put it there in the first place? Because I... I know God didn't make us like a robot. He gave us like choices and freedom. But still, like, if he wanted Eden to be perfect, why did he put the tree in the first place? I, I guess in part we don't know. You know, why did God, why didn't God just create a perfect world where there was no opportunity for there to be a fall? I mean, we do see that world in the great city of Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, I guess in part there was the stuff we were talking about in terms of that responsibility. True relationship, true love is enabled by having a responsibility to choose to love or choose not to love. I think it's in part that. But I think also what we see, and we're going to come to this in a minute, what we see all the way through the scriptures is that God is passionate for his own glory. God wants the whole world to say, look at me, I am incredible. Which you think, that's a bit strange, isn't that arrogant? Well, it would be very arrogant if God was not God, but it's not remotely arrogant for God because God is God. And really, God exists for his own glory. He created us for his own glory. And if it means that he gets more glory by creating a great world that is broken, becomes broken, but then is able to express his glory even more deeply by sending his only son to express even more how much he loves us, and then dealing with sin forever and taking us to be with him in eternity, that is really an expression of, of God's deeper love that he wants us to understand. So why did he do it? Ultimately, what we're going to see in a minute as we just wrap things up, God wants us to give him glory. And I think what we see through the whole of the scriptures when we read them together is that through Christ and the cross and the resurrection, God receives more glory than he perhaps would have if there hadn't been a fall. Um, So we have to trust him on that. And I think we see in Jesus Christ an amazing victory over death. Um, which God and his wisdom... Um, so we, we must never think, that, as I said before, that what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned kind of caught God out and he went back to plan B. This was always part of his plan. Since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, God always planned to send his son because he's so passionate about us understanding how much he loves us. Let's, um, let's uh, come back just to the last few bits to pull together. I'd just like to help us to see why this symbol of the tree is so crucial um, here in Genesis and how we kind of trace it all the way through the Bible because the more and more we see how themes are linked, I hope the more confidence we'll have uh, that the whole Bible fits together. So here's the tree of life in the garden. We've spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. And there's the tree of life in the city. 
in Revelation chapter 21 and 2. Uh, we read in the prayer at the beginning of the service, uh, Revelation 21 verse 3, um, the dwelling of God is now with men. He will be their God. They will be his people. And the tree of life reappears right at the end of the Bible. If you want to turn to it, chapter 22 verse 2. It's there right at the beginning of the Bible. It disappears but reappears in different forms through the Bible. But it comes very clearly here in chapter 22 and verse 2. I'll read from the second half of verse 2. On the other side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So you've got the the garden and the tree of life in the centre of the garden in Genesis 2. You've got a great city in Revelation 22 and the tree of life reappears. But I guess the really big question is how do you get from the garden to the city? How do we get from the place that God wanted us to be to the place that we one day will be? Well, all the way through the Bible, you see the tree in different forms as a very important symbol of life. And I think what happens is that this symbol keeps cropping up all the way through the Bible because life is about hope. And as we know of the tree in the garden, as we look forward to the tree in the city, these different glimpses of trees through the Bible gives us hope that we get from the garden back to the city. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of it. This is this lovely psalm that opens the book of Psalms, 150 psalms, the first one. uh, Blessed is the person, the one, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. If a tree is rooted in fertile land where it has water, then what does it do? It grows up to be strong. It flourishes. And that picture of a great oak tree that is rooted in the the water is the same picture of you and I if we're rooted in the scriptures. As as Neil really helpfully helps us see this morning, uh, breathing God, breathing life into us by his spirit through his word. So there's a little glimpse of the tree that brings forth life. You get another couple. Here's just a different example of it. You get in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Ultimately saying those who are trusting in the righteousness of Christ will get to that tree of life again in the great city to come. And it's also spoken of Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4. Um, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. Uh, in the context there, it's speaking of the wisdom of speaking words that are true, speaking words that are helpful. But what does it do? Using our words in a God-honoring way brings life to ourselves, to those that we speak to. So you see that trees come up all the way through the Bible in different ways. Uh, You also see that that trees are integral to the promises that God makes. They're not going to come on the screen, but there's one promise that God makes in Isaiah 51. God's people are, are being sent away into exile. They're in the wilderness, I guess the wilderness of death. But the promise that God makes to his people through Isaiah is that this wilderness of death will be transformed back and the description is to the garden of life. It's a promise of hope to God's people. Well, how do we get, therefore, from that tree in the garden to that tree in the city? It's through another tree, isn't it? And Paul helps us understand this tree in Galatians chapter 3 where he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. 
Friends, what we see here is that the world that God created, that we started tonight, didn't we, with that, that picture, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 12, of the abundance and flourishing in the garden. The world that God wanted us to enjoy, but which we have spoiled and been thrown out of because we want in defiance to be God of our own lives. That tree of life, that offer of hope, comes again at the end of the Bible. A place where there'll be no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain. But to get from the one which we've been thrown out of to the other, we get there through the tree of life. Because when Jesus Christ hung on that cross and cried, it was finished. He gave up his life that we can have life. Do you know, that's why it was so moving this morning to hear Judy and Philip speak of their lifetime ministry. Because they have given their life under God to helping people read the scriptures in their own language. Why? Because they, as they said this morning, are convinced that this is life. It's a story of hope from beginning to end. And when people have this in their own language and come to see that that man who hung on a cross wasn't just a fact of history, but hung on a cross for them, it brings life. One other hand that I have put together for us, which, which may or may not be helpful for you, you can take this away, there's a copy at the door. What I've tried to do is, I've taken some of the big themes from Genesis 1 and 2, things you saw in the garden, but I've tried to help us to see that these aren't just themes in the garden and then kind of get lost, but they're themes that can be traced all the way through the scriptures. They're big themes that are picked up in the tabernacle and the temple, the places where the people of God in the Old Testament worship God. They're picked up again through the cross of Jesus Christ and they're picked up finally in Revelation. And I hope perhaps as you take this away, if you'd find that helpful, it could help you to increasingly see how the whole Bible is linked together. Um, So if that's helpful to you, you're welcome to take one of those. Um, And uh, I pray that'll be useful for you. Just uh, two or three concluding thoughts before um, Neil comes to lead us in some prayers. I hope what you've seen tonight is that the tree of life in the garden represents the presence of God. Yes, a real tree, but it represents God with his people, giving abundant life to his people. I hope that we can see clearly that we will only know life if we know the presence of God. I guess that has real and very serious implications for our world, doesn't it? We're surrounded by by people who are biologically alive but spiritually dead. So I'd love you to go away as as you think about this tree of life and consider what does that mean for you and your relationships with those that you love, those that you rub shoulders with. Could you offer them the life that Jesus Christ offered you? It's worth also, I guess in humility, recognizing if it weren't for the grace of God... I would have no life either. You would have no life either. It's the grace of God that enables us to get from being thrown out of that garden back into the great city. Uh, We can never move from the grace of God. We can never move on from the grace of God. And it would be a good thing to do this week just to slow down and reflect on all that Christ has done for us in giving us life. But what I'd really love us all to do as we close on Genesis 1 and 2 is recognize that this story, the scriptures, is actually his story. That's what history is. It's God's story, his story. His story of how he has taken us from a place of blessing which we have ejected ourselves from, but he wants to bring us back to a place of abundant life. This is his story, his rescue story. 
And I hope that we can marvel at that story. I hope that we can increasingly see how we're involved in this story. And my prayer for us would be that we would have more and more of a passion to want to involve other people in this story. I'm going to close by reading one verse that comes in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. Uh, Verse 14, sorry. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Why don't you just take a moment of quiet to reflect on some of the things we've been thinking of tonight, some of the things we've been thinking of through our series in Genesis 1 and 2. And Neil will lead us in the time of prayer.